0: He has a wry knack for describing the eccentricities of everyday life and looking at the mundane through a personal lens that feels more familiar than you might like to admit. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and we're delighted to have best-selling humorist David Sedaris in our studio for the hour ahead. David joins us for a chat about what he's been up to living in France and Japan while compiling material for his latest collection of first-person essays. David's the author of such works as Naked, Me Talked Pretty One Day, and dress your family in corduroy and denim. His latest book is called When You Are Engulfed in Flames. David, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. When You're Engulfed in Flames, everybody must ask you right off the bat, where did that name come from?
1: I needed to quit smoking just because all the decent hotels in the United States went non-smoking, and I travel at least 60 days a year. And I can go to 30 cities in 30 days if I'm at the Ritz-Carlton but I can't do it at the Amer Suites. So after 30 years of smoking, and I was never a self-hating smoker. you know, right. I, After 30 years, I said, okay, all right, you win. <laughs> you win. <laughs> so, and I never even thought about quitting before. But I thought about quitting smoking, and I thought about Tokyo. I thought I'll go to Tokyo to quit smoking huh. because I'd gone once for three days. And in the neighborhood where I was staying in Ginza, it's against the law to smoke on the street. And that doesn't have anything to do with secondhand smoke. It, it, it's because so many people are getting burned by lit cigarettes. So you have to go to a smoking station.
0: So it's worse there even than in the United States or Paris for smokers.
1: Well, inside, you can smoke your head off. Mm-hmm. In an office, and a restaurant, knock yourself out. It's just outside. So it's the opposite of the rest of the world. Hmm. And also another reason they outlawed it is because of litter. So I went to Tokyo to quit smoking. I went to Tokyo for three months. And I went to Hiroshima, and I was in a hotel room in Hiroshima, and there was a booklet in my room that said, Best Knowledge of Disaster Damage Prevention and Favors to Ask of You. And it was broken into chapters. When you check in a hotel room, when you find a fire, and when you are engulfed in flames. What I loved about that was that that you would be engulfed in flames, and then you'd say, damn it, what did that booklet say in my hotel? Yeah. <laughs> it's, I think of it
0: that when I look in hotel rooms. They got all the instructions. <laughs> like, you're going to sit down and read calmly the instructions rather than run down the hall screaming. So this is one essay in a collection of essays in this book, then? Yes. About yes. your smoking experience or your quitting smoking experience. Now, you, your books are collections of essays. Is cohesion a concern, or are you just collect a bunch of essays and you can make a book? And it's- Generally,
1: I, I write for The New Yorker. I, I publish a lot in The New Yorker. So every four years, I take what I've written, uh, what I've had on the radio or in The New Yorker, and then I sort of put it all together. I, I've never sat down thinking, oh, I'm going to write a book now. Mm-hmm. I don't have that much to say about anything.
0: You know, I liked it. I, I like browsing through it and not having to have a, a logical sequence of chapters. It's it's very uh, enjoyable just to read that way, a collection of essays with cohesion, not a factor.
1: Well, sometimes we, I, I always record my books for a book on tape, right? Right. And when you read the book on tape, you think, oh, then, then you can start seeing sort of a theme right. or you can uh, notice similarities. There's a lot of things on fire in this book. But speaking of being engulfed in flames, I was in a hotel in Philadelphia a few weeks ago and at 2 o'clock in the morning, the fire alarm goes off and it sounded like there was a fire truck in my room because normally I'd think, I'm on the third floor. You know, I, mean, I can jump out the window and I'll live. I'm just going to go back to sleep. But this, the fire alarm was so loud, there was no way you could sleep. Anyway, so it, it says, go into the hall and do not take the elevator. Go downstairs. And I did. And what was interesting to me was that nobody had a suitcase. Women did not have their purses. A lot of people were just dressed in their bathrobes and slippers. I put my clothes on, and I took that little USB port from my computer in mm-hmm. my wallet, but I thought, well, if I take my computer, then I'm going to take those <laughs> shoes, and I'm going to take this and that. But I thought that people would be, would be greedy that way. I thought yeah. that they would go down with their stuff. As if
0: the place was really on fire. But don't you lay there in bed and think, now there's probably a 95% chance that this is a mistake or a drill or something, and a very remote chance that it's actually a fire.
1: Right. But other people seemed, they, they took it much more seriously than I did. But anyway, I was surprised that they didn't bring their stuff with them. Well,
0: at least you got your USB keys, all your writing. Is, yeah, that, is that what you grab is what you've been writing on? Yeah. That's, that's what I, what I grab. grab. That's all I want. Is my cuz I can't I could I don't care what the cost is of what I lost, but if I had to sit down and rewrite it again,
1: oh, that'd right. be tough. But that was a gr- that's great about that little stick though, really. I, love it. I mean, now that that's all you all you really need to grab is that little stick. I got my whole life in that little stick. Now, I
0: read a review and somebody said uh David Sedaris is older, wiser, smarter and meaner with this book. Meaner?
1: Oh, really? Yeah. I don't ever read anything about myself.
0: <laughs> well, mean, I mean, I read about your um Spider. April in Paris. That was mean.
1: Was it mean, you think? Yeah. Tell what? people how you fed your spider in Normandy. We lived part of the time in Normandy in this house in the country, and there are these big spiders called Teganaria gigantea, and they're about the size and shape of an unshelled peanut. And for years, I never paid them any attention. And then I, I saw one catch a fly one day. That was the day my life changed. It was fascinating. What happened? How did it change? Well, just to see it, the fly got caught in the web, and the spider came out and grabbed it, and it was it was so dramatic. You know, if it was a kitten, it might have been different, but no one likes a fly, really. I mean, if you're going to eat anyone alive, it might as well be a fly. So I started feeding these spiders, and they, you know, and in, in the summertime, we might have like 40 webs going in our house. If you catch a fly against the window, and you just put a glass over them, and then you the glass confuses them, and you put a lid on the jar of the glass, and you shake it like it's a <laughs> cocktail, and then you just pour the fly into the web, and it, and it sort of lands there like a drunk person, and it says, oh, i got to get out of here. And then when it starts twitching, the spider comes, and it's every time it's fascinating.
0: And the spider probably thought, this is too easy.
1: Well, I didn't realize that by feeding them that much, I was actually shortening their lives. But this kind of spider, they can live up to up to two years. You actually shorten their lives how? It's better for them. It, it, it's, it's kind it, of like
0: don't feed the monkeys or something.
1: Right. It's better for them not to eat that much. Oh, okay. Like they can go a couple months without
0: eating. Well, I thought that was kind of mean to make the flies all dizzy and then just
1: feed them groggy to but, the right. t- spiders. But they're flies.
0: <laughs> but I was reading the chapter and it was April <laughs> in Paris.
1: I, I guess I care about... Well, you care about... You grew attached to your spider, didn't you? And Very. Then did. And then I took my spider to Paris at right. the end of the summer And I just realized that the fly situation is a lot different in Paris than it is in Normandy. In Normandy, without even trying that hard, I can easily catch, I don't know, 70 flies a day. (laughs) And in Paris, I was reduced to hanging out at trash cans at the Luxembourg Gardens. There weren't any flies in my apartment, and so I was having to go outside and try to get them. It's much, much harder to try to uh, catch a fly out in the open. But then
0: finally, you took your spider back to Normandy.
1: I took her back. And she but, took she just left you, yes, yeah, they don't really care about us, <laughs> no, and she's probably hungry
0: now because the flies are not as easy to catch.
1: every summer, I have a new crop of spiders at the house, well, I that's keep, good. In, and I note their comings and goings and their little killings and th- when they lay their eggs and when they mate and and your
0: boyfriend supports you in this passion
1: of yours he Last spring, I went to the house, and he had knocked down all the webs. Because normally, it looks like campaign headquarters—you know, like bunting hanging from the rafters. Hey, Time Magazine named you the humorist
0: of the year in two thousand one. That was not a very funny year. You know,
1: that came out on September tenth, wow. two thousand one. That issue of Time Magazine came out. year of our out. lives. Yeah, it came out on September tenth. Oh my goodness! And so they brought out a special issue like three days later. So, yeah. Talk it, about a. Uh, inopportune time to be named funny. Yeah, I know. It was the worst time ever. (laughs) But Time magazine that year, I think they just got it into their mind and they named somebody like, I don't know, Florist of the Year or... Right. And it's not like they did it again the next year. Now, is your goal in collecting these
0: essays just to be entertaining and funny or do you have some sort of personal agenda that you really care about beyond that?
1: You know, the things that I care about, I'm not articulate. I'm just emotional about. I mean,
0: do you care that people get to know you through the writing so they can accept a person like you, quirky gay
1: mm. no, I mean, I guess they're just trying to tell a story mm-hmm. so uh, it's entertainment, it's pure entertainment yeah, yeah, I mean I suppose, but again, like the things that I care about i'm 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 emotional, i'm not um I'm not knowledgeable, okay. you know, like like politics, right? right, I don't sound any different than someone you had to dinner last night, All right. You know, so than some guy who came to your house for dinner. Right. Like often I'll read something in the paper and try to pass it off as my own opinion, hoping that nobody else read it. You know, I can call people names and, and this and that, but I'd much rather hear from someone who who actually knows something. Do you
0: feel like you inspire people to see the quirky little things in life and, and just embrace life a little less complacently that way?
1: Uh, I mean, I don't think I'm any different than anybody else. I mean, I think the only thing that makes me any different than anyone else is... That I carry a notebook in my pocket and that because I'm always on the hunt for something to write about, perhaps mm. I remember things that other people don't. Yeah. Like I'm 51 now. You're a lint brush. But I, I think what happens to man, to men my age, right? Sometimes this will happen. I'll be in the airport and I will urinate. And then I think, well, that's all over. And then I put everything back, and then I look down, and there's urine on my pants, right? So mm-hmm. someone said, oh, you broke your seal, right? You broke your seal, and you can't. You, there's no turning back. That's going to be your case for the rest of your life. So when you're in khaki pants in the airport, that looks – it's really evident. So I find myself splashing my myself yeah. with water at the sink. So people in the waiting area will think that I just had a sink accident. So, And I think that's something that most guys do. Most guys can relate to that. But they forget about it. Like, they do it and then they forget about it. Yeah. But but because I make my living off of such things, then I do it and then I think, oh, I bet a lot of people do this. Because generally the most embarrassing things that you can write about are the things that happen to everyone. We're not, we're not that well, different. Well, I think
0: that's what's funny about them. We can all relate to them. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And we're talking with David Sedaris. David Sedaris is our guest today on Travel with Rick Steves. He's here to share some of the stories he's included in his latest book, When You Are Engulfed in Flames, and how he experiences life as a 50-something expat in Europe. These days, David divides his time paying attention to the details of everyday life in the U.S., England, and France. So, David, how long have you been living in Paris now?
1: Uh, I think... think I left the United States in 1998. My boyfriend Hugh has a house in Normandy Uh in just a little village. It's like 12 houses uh, along the side of a road. And I started going there. We would go for vacation and I would learn a few words and then I would go back like six months later for a week. And I would have forgotten everything that I learned. So I wanted to learn the language. The best way to learn a language is to sleep with someone from that country. But if you can't do that and moving to that country is a pretty good idea. And feed spiders. Yeah. So I I moved to France. We, we got an apartment in Paris, and I was going to stay for a year. And, you know, in the way that these things happen, a year turned into 10. So you've been there quite a while.
0: And you divide your time Paris, what, Paris, London, and the United States?
1: I, I just come to the United States for work. Right. But uh, I started going to London to do some things for the BBC, and then I, I, I liked it. So... I just got my what's called indefinite leave to remain. So I just got my green card in England. So now I can begin a citizenship process. I can get my British passport. I can start doing that. I had to take many tests in order to uh, get my work permit. I had to take a life in the U.K. test and learn, like, the difference between House of Lords and the House of Commons and what year did women get the right to vote. Well, you know, that's quite remarkable that you grew up in the United States— and you've
0: decided not only to be like a temporary expat, but you've decided to leave. What made you want to leave the United
1: States? You know, I just thought that I'd li- I lived here for 40 years, and I mm-hmm. thought, well, that's enough. And I come back, and I go on these tours twice a year, and I see everyone in my address book, mm-hmm. and I like being a foreigner. I like... Did 40 years in the United States,
0: did just you get a little complacent about that or something? And
1: No, I, you know, I'm not one of those people... I. I I mean, if I had to live in the United States again, I would. But I like the way that living in another country. I like all the things you don't know when you live in another country. Like when I went to Japan, I, I did some studying before I went. I got these language mm-hmm. CDs. They were Pimsler, is what they were mm-hmm. called, and they were pretty great. I thought because they they taught you slogans that people actually use. Anyway, so I studied with those before I went. But well, you're
0: clumsier when you're in another country, and that sort of lets you bumble around and have more fun, maybe.
1: Well, I mean, I keep walking
0: into the doors that say "pull" and, and right. it's "push," and I've been doing it for 20 years. I mean, it's not
1: that tough to learn those words, but I kind of like it. I, I just, ah, I'm a goo, You've done it again. Well, I like uh, like when I went to Tokyo for the first time. I took a train from the airport to the middle of town, and I left the train station. And I lit a cigarette, and I looked around, and I thought, "Oh, no one else is smoking." And then I looked, and I didn't see any trash cans, and I didn't see any trash. So I put the cigarette out and put it in the cuff of my pants and proceeded from there. And then I asked at the hotel, and they explained to me that you couldn't smoke on the street. Hmm. But I like that about going to another country, too, is you, you watch the other people and do what they do, and it makes you more observant. Like in, in Japan, no one would stand to abreast on an escalator, mm-hmm. right? Um, or I never saw anyone talk on their cell phone, on the subway, people paid with cash rather than credit cards. And as long as you're noticing that, then you notice, oh, wow, that, that person has a wooden leg, or look at the crazy thing that's written on that person's T-shirt, or as long as you've got your, your observant glasses on, mm-hmm. you, you notice Maybe that's everything. one
0: reason why you must enjoy Paris. I mean, these people are so proud of their way of life, and it's such an art form, and it's different than ours.
1: Yeah. Do I you mean, consider it, Paris a great city? Yes, I do. Um, That said, I'm not, I was never like a Francophile. I was never one of those people that moved to France because I thought everything French was so fantastic. I just sort of wound up there because, again, Hugh had that house and I wanted to learn the language. But I find myself, the older I get, I, I find myself angry in Paris. I find myself angered by, oh, just the sort of city things that will anger a person, you know, like People standing for abreast and having a conversation at the entrance to the turnstile, or someone letting their dog uh, defecate right in front of my the door to my apartment building, or just just city things You're picking you know.
0: up this sort of French, this Parisian sort of uh, what Americans think is mean,
1: or just Angry. sort of impatient. Inpatient, but if you live. Yeah. I I used to live in New York, and in my neighborhood in New York, I could tell when the Italian school vacations were, right? All of a sudden, everyone was on vacation. Everyone on the street was Italian, and they would stand in the crosswalk, and they're not crossing. They're just standing there, and you're you're trying to get to work. You've got stuff to do. So in a city like Paris, where there's so many tourists, you can understand people being cranky.
0: There's a lot of tourists. I mean— what, a couple million tourists a year go to – Americans go to Paris a year, I think.
1: Right. And then, and then you've got people from other places now too. Now, what annoys
0: you about tourists? Because I, I get annoyed by tourists in Paris.
1: Uh, I think one thing that embarrasses me sometimes is I don't think Americans are aware uh, – uh, Americans often will go to a shop, say, and they'll think, oh, that person just said – gave me the price. That person just said to me 15 euros in English. So therefore, they speak English, and they don't understand that that person speaks like 25 words of English. Right. And then you'll hear the Americans say, you know, they, we have things just like this back home, but I, well, I want to buy it back home, but they don't have the brown, and I like the brown. Well, my husband doesn't think the brown looks good on me, and I keep telling him it does, but that's what happens when you marry, not like this. And I'm sitting there thinking that person doesn't have any idea. In in Japan, everyone spoke 17 words of English. Mm-hmm. And when I arrived, I didn't speak much Japanese, but we were very careful not to push one another outside of the boundaries of our 17 words because that would cause shame. Hmm. So it's interesting to me to see Americans in Paris who don't really understand that... the the, Americans
0: aren't very uh, sensitive to who they're talking to. I mean, they'll talk louder, they'll talk faster. Americans tend to be very noisy, I think.
1: Well... Uh, you know, you do notice that, uh, how loudly we speak. We you know, I like
0: Europeans in hushed tones. You can be in a restaurant and there's 20 conversations going on and it's still really mellow.
1: Well, you know, I like what I like too is coming back to America, I'm always shocked at how loud the restaurants are here. Yeah. You go to a place and then I was at a place the other day and there's super loud music and then TVs. Yeah. It's like, well, what, what, what's all that for?
0: Airports in America where they have to keep the TV on. I think they're paid to run those those, TV, those commercial television stations. I can be all alone in a small-town airport, all alone, ask them, can I turn the volume down on this TV? No, it's got to stay right. on. What's with that, you know? <laughs> you don't get that in, in a lot of European countries, I don't think. You get a lot of Americans that just they don't get it. They've seen people in a movie snapping their fingers and saying, garçon.
1: Well, I always noticed in New York, like people thought that New Yorkers were supposed to be rude often people would come to visit me in New York and they were perfectly pleasant people, but we would go out for dinner and then they would act like they would be arrogant and they would be rude. And it was because they wanted people to think that they were native New Yorkers. But I find actually in France, you know, when you speak the language, there are little pleasantries that need to be exchanged before other things happen. And you don't say to someone in France, you don't say, uh, you you don't just say hello. You say hello, sir or hello, ma'am. You have to remind the person of their sex, um, and then things proceed from there. But often people don't understand that, and so it's jarring to a French person to skip that whole part of the sure, but it's very process. You know, it's hard for Americans who don't have all this
0: fine. I don't think we have the fineness in our language. I don't know the gender of a single noun in French. I don't think do you. Oh,
1: you know, it's so hard to... Like French people, they just grow up with it, and so it's always in their... They just learn it once. But me, Perrier and Badois, right? They're both sparkling waters, and one is masculine and one is feminine. And I believe that it's Perrier is masculine because I I saw it written on an umbrella, and I thought, okay, the umbrella is a phallus. That's how I'm going to remember it. So you have
0: to have a a sexual uh, memory aid for every noun in the dictionary.
1: Yes, but then... And then it turns out vagina is masculine, you know, or words that you would think, oh, here is vagina ma- masculine. It, <laughs> that's the thing. Like, I try to get it in my head. Then right. you, yeah. And then your mind plays games. That they're like, did I say it that way or this way? Well, that was, was nice about Japan is that it's just Straightforward book. Home. It's book, not right. Mr. Book. It's just <laughs> Mr. Book. book. In your book, you mentioned
0: uh, you've never stepped foot in the Louvre. You've been in Paris for several years. Never set foot. After a
1: certain point, then you think, okay, this is be my thing. Now you can't do it. <laughs> right. No, I
0: can't. Okay, so now it's a matter of... A... But
1: I like Drouot. Do you ever go to Drouot? What's that now? It's the auction house in Paris. Oh. And it used to be the only game in town, and then they changed the laws, and so now well, there's... Well, Sotheby's a... in London, similar right. thing, yeah. But now they have Christie's in, in Paris, and yeah. it's, it's opened up, but Drouot used to be the only auction house, and there are mm-hmm. 12 rooms on any given day, and you walk in... And in one room, they've got like seventeenth uh, century Dutch paintings. And in the next room, they've got silver. and in the next room, they've got boxes of junk. Anybody can go. I like going there because the things in the Louvre will always be there. Mm-hmm. But at Dreau, they're just there today. And they're giving an insight into somebody's life. If you don't want to bid, you, you have to pay with a check or uh, cash or All with right. you can't use like an American credit card to pay for something. But you can go and you can look at the things laid out, you know, That are, and they have catalogs. They're showing today what they're going to auction tomorrow, right. and you can pay in cash and get it that way.
0: I'm Rick Steves. We're talking with David Sedaris. David lives in Paris. We're talking about his experience in Paris. He's written a new book called When You're Engulfed in Flames, which is a collection of 22 different essays. David, when you're in Paris, okay, you haven't been to the Louvre. Are you into the Notre Dame, Eiffel Tower, Versailles? Been to those places? Enjoyed them?
1: No, but I like the Manu
0: Prix. The mo- okay, so you're a shopper. Let's say there's a David Sedaris guidebook to Paris. What would
1: the, the top sites, experiences, probably experiences more than sites, what would you push? You know, it's funny when you live in Paris. It's, it's almost embarrassing to write and live in Paris because people get this romantic notion, you know, mm-hmm. that you, you sit in a cafe and write. And I don't, I'm not comfortable in a cafe because I'm always afraid that no one's going to wait on me. So I like the food court. At the carousel of the Louvre, which is like a a little mall Mm -hmm. underneath the Louvre. So they have a food court there. So I bring people there to that food court. Or I bring them to Quique, which is like uh, a French McDonald's.
0: A Quique is a fast food, a French fast food. Yeah. yeah. Um,
1: I bring people to the puppet show at the Luxembourg Gardens because there's a little theater there that's been there forever. And it's absolutely charming, the puppet show. And if you, even if you don't speak French, the whole thing, it takes 20 minutes, and there's an intermission. Um, then they sell, like, ice cream at the intermission, and the children, American children are slobs, but f- the children that you see in the Luxembourg Gardens, it's almost like it's a casting call for well-dressed, adorable children. And they go, and they, they get very excited during the puppet show. It's a, That's a charming thing to do. But I just like doing normal things. What
0: scenes do you like? There's the Trocadero, there's the Steps of Sacre Coeur, any scenes that you just like to hang out at?
1: No. I often go to Bercy. I go to the movies just about every day in Paris because there's a chain called UGC, Uh and there must be 25 UGC theaters in Paris, and everyone has between 5 and 25 screens. They take 17 euros a month out of my checking account, and I can go to as many movies as I want. Really? You can Mm -hmm.
0: have a sort of a... Theater version of Netflix, 17, yeah. 17
1: euros. That's, what, $25, $30, and you can go to any theater as much as you like in this chain. Mm-hmm. Yep, I can go. And then they just hmm. opened it up. There's another chain that's called MK du And so now your UGC card works at MK du so now, these are intimate little theaters, right? No, no, they're these like... big? They're big theaters, and then okay. some some of the small mom-and-pop theaters got in on it too. so I was
0: just at a theater on Rue Galland in the Latin Quarter, and they've got a Rocky Horror Club that's been meeting every Friday
1: for 25 years. I love those little theaters in the fifth there. And you go and you tip the person who tears your ticket. Right. And you buy your ticket and then you go, you take three steps and then someone tears it. And then you you tip them because what they just did is so difficult. And and it used to be that you would tip them for showing you to your seat. But now they, they skip that part so that you find the seat yourself. But you still give them a little something. But I like doing normal things. I like the normal You know, the the supermarket Paris, the movie theater Paris, probably the parts of Paris that most people think of as un-Parisian. Mundane.
0: But I find the French hate the banality. But you find some of the most charming part of Paris the banal part of it.
1: Well, like when someone comes, I always bring them to Picard. And Picard is a frozen food store. Right. And they have a special method for freezing. Um, And they have TV dinners and stuff, but they've got also, like, any kind of fish or meat or vegetables or fruit, all frozen. That's where, I don't know, every French person I know goes to Picard. So they buy frozen
0: food, and it's not as uh, bad as a TV dinner? It's actually good quality, they figure? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, the
1: meat or the fish or the—no, it's good. If you opened Picard in the United States, you would never be able to count all the money. You wouldn't be able to count it. So this is a
0: frozen food, and it's a gourmet a frozen food chain.
1: Not, yeah, I wouldn't even call it gourmet, but okay, it's but all through But you could get your escargot France. and so on, and they oh, just yeah, have a yeah.
0: way to... And it's, it'll be end up being... They know how to do it, but it's for busy French people that want to have good food and not do all the work.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's, Makes sense. it's... Everyone I know swears by it.
0: I'm talking, by the way, with David Sedaris, and uh, David's lived several years in Paris, and... Hasn't stepped into the Louvre, but he has a sort of a knack for finding the minutiae of French life. The minutiae, what's fun. I mean, you, you mentioned the frozen food store, eating crepes. To me, it's a simple little crepe stand. That's one of the charming things of Paris if you want a good meal, quick meal. What do you do for just an expedient meal
1: out and about? Oh, golly. I, I like that Kaiser, that Kaiser Bakery. There's one in my neighborhood. And... I mean, I don't know exactly how many there are in Paris, but there's one in the fifth, and there's one in the sixth. And so you go to Boulangerie, a little bakery. What's your? Do you have a guilty pleasure there? I can't eat chocolate. I'd go you know, to t- tell you the truth, like, I, and I wouldn't give you ten cents for a tart. Oh, I like, I like the a strawberry pie. tart, the strawberry cream tart. I like a pie. I like something with a top on it. Oh, okay, that's what I like. <laughs> and then uh, there there's a Starbucks that opened around the corner from me in Paris. Right, so. You I don't thought, have any problems
0: with going to Starbucks in
1: Paris? No, because you know what—the coffee in France isn't that good. I know. I'm it's amazed. Really not that I like good. the coffee at
0: American Starbucks kind of places better than the famous European coffee. I don't know what it is.
1: Well, I went to the Starbucks and I said, "I just want a cup of coffee, right?" And the guy said, "Oh, well, I have to make it." And so then I waited like ten minutes, and then I said, w- wait, "Where's that coffee you were going to make me?" And I saw him—I saw him draw my coffee from the decaf bin. No, yeah. at Starbucks? Yeah. So did That was <laughs> it. So that was it for, that was it for that's me. The French Oh man! Oh my goodness! When people come to visit, I'll take them to La Dure. La Durée. That's not, I'll macaroons. Take them to the to the one that the old ladies go to. On the Champs Elysees. The one near Madeleine. Okay. Because they've they've got a few of them right. now. La Durée. Right. But the one near Madeleine is like the old lady one, and that's a, just that's a nice place to take Pestel people. Pastel macaroons. But it's interesting when people come to visit, and you'll think, and I'll say to them, "Okay, I'm going to take you to." But, you know, a tea place, and it's kind of a special place, and you don't go there every day. So we're gonna, we'll go this afternoon, and then I meet with them, and they're like wearing shorts and t-shirts, yeah. and it's like, no, didn't I explain it to you? Like this is an old lady place. Like the old ladies get dressed up, and this is special. Well, I want to be comfortable. Well, you're gonna make other people uncomfortable. It's not. You're gonna be more comfortable dressing
0: sensitively, I would think. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David Sedaris. David's written a brand-new collection of essays called When You're Engulfed in Flames, and we're talking about the minutiae of life in France, and we're going to head to Tokyo in a little while. Thanks for joining us. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're joined by David Sedaris. David is uh, very popular among public radio listeners, and David's written six collections of essays. His latest book is When You're Engulfed in Flames. David, we're talking about the minutiae of French life. And, you know, the French, I find, are really into discretion. You know, they like to have their privacy, uh, the café scene. A, I understand there's a kind of a private secret time between work and going home where they can just sort of lead a second life. They can uh, calm
1: down and, and, and give a little cushion in their existence. Have you given that much thought or encountered that? It well, It's interesting the way... when I went to French school when I moved to Paris because I, I didn't speak any French... And I said to the teacher one day, we were talking she was telling us how to introduce people, and I said, Well, how would you introduce someone as your boyfriend or your girlfriend? And she said, You wouldn't. She said, It's nobody's business who you're sleeping with. We're Americans. We're like, I'm getting all I want, and this is who I'm getting it from. Or in our village in Normandy, Le Pen won in the last two elections, right? And the word fascist is often thrown around unfairly, but it's it's not unfair to apply it to him. There, nobody wears a campaign button. No one puts a sign in their yard. No one puts a bumper sticker on their car, and it's rude to ask someone who they voted for. So it's easy to elect a fascist in that situation. So sometimes I find that discretion maddening, and sometimes I, I like it. But it's hard for an American because, especially when I first moved there, because I'm so I'm used to America. In America, you can say to somebody. Uh, God, I love your shoes. How much do they cost? Really? And how much did your watch cost? <laughs> yeah. How much money do you make a year? If your shoes cost that much and your watch costs that much, how much do you make? Oh, are you divorced? How much do you have to pay in an alimony? <laughs> and I love that. And you cannot get away with that. So that France. would be New York uh, banter
0: at a party. But you just couldn't do it in Paris, huh? No,
1: not, not at all. And in New York, you begin by saying, how much rent do you pay? Or how much cost, did you pay yeah. for your apartment? And you just can't do it there.
0: So you got to learn that. you got to be a little bit clued in to what are the norms when you're trying to be more sensitive than your friends that wouldn't wear long pants to the fancy cafe.
1: Well, people will give you a little break, but uh, so many things just don't play there. Right. Now, what about
0: um, the gay scene? A lot of people ask me what it's like in Europe for gay travelers and so on. Is it even
1: an issue in Paris? I don't really know. I mean, because I'm old, so I've <laughs> never... <laughs> I've never gone to like a, a gay bar, or right. I've never gone to. a, Oh, I don't
0: know. Like, but you're living with your boyfriend, and it's just it's just not an issue for people in your neighborhood in Paris. Or I don't
1: it? think so. You know, I've I've often thought that being homosexual is like a, a plus when you're trying to get an apartment, right? Because as as a tenant, you're saying to the landlord, like, can we make and improve? Can we put in flower boxes? <laughs> and we'd like to plant some trees in the yard and 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 paint the front room if that's possible then you are gonna rent to the you know to the decorating homosexuals before you're gonna rent to like the the slobs so,
0: <laughs> well if the if the landlord knows what's what's uh what's good for him, in Normandy right.
1: in Normandy there was this man who lived in our village and he had a goat that he kept unchained, and the goat would just sort of stand in the middle of the road and confront you or just Wander into people's gardens and eat things anyway i was walking by this guy's house one day and he said i know you're in that house down there and i've been in that house and there's only one bed and there's two of you where do you sleep but he was crazy like the 81 year old farmer Mm. and his wife across the street when i told them about that they said oh god he's
0: you know overwhelmed by the modern right we
1: can't we can't wait for him to die you're um so
0: well-known and quite a celebrity in the United States. In Paris, do you take advantage of that? Or, like, are you a famous writer in Paris and you oh, get no. into the high society? Or just no, a- no, no.
1: I don't. I don't. Uh, I mean, my books come out in France, but it's just a secret between me and my French publisher. <laughs> we wouldn't want anyone to know about it. Uh, no, I don't. Uh, I had to go on French TV for a couple of the books. And it was interesting to go on French television and then all of a sudden you go to Beaumarchais and then someone says, oh, I, I saw you on TV. And I think, really? You watch that show? It's you can go on American television and you don't you don't get recognized like that. They probably remembered me because who's that fool on TV? Who's that buffoon? Who is that Some, yeah. idiot chew, just molesting our language on, on our beloved television networks? One thing that we, I don't think that we would have... Moved to Paris. Were it not for this woman we knew in Normandy named Colette, who had an apartment in Paris, just a weekend kind of apartment, and we were in Normandy, and then she said, "Oh, when you're in Paris, don't stay in a hotel. Stay in my apartment. Here are the keys." And so that gave Hugh and I a a chance to play house. And I think it's so good to go to another country and stay in an apartment like that. And that way you get to grocery shop and you get an idea of what it would actually be like to live there. Which is something you don't get, and that was that experience was enough to
0: woo you away from the pastoral Normandy scene and get into the big city in France. Then,
1: well, I mean, it it got me out of New York. Even it was enough to make me think, okay, well, I'll leave New York, but I don't think I would have done it if I hadn't had that opportunity. And we rent our apartment out a lot, right? There are all kinds of like websites and stuff. Have you had good luck with that? Yeah, we, we actually have had good luck. You don't lot. worry about having a stranger just come into your apartment? I'm not that... I'm not Feed the spiders. I'm not paranoid that way. Like, if I thought about it, if I thought, oh, oh somebody is trying on my socks right now. I mean, I, maybe they are, but I wouldn't think That's about it. That's too short
0: to worry about that. You, your new book is called When You're Engulfed in Flames. The whole idea is you're quitting smoking. Smoking is such a big deal in Paris in the cafe scene and so on. Locals just have to have their cigarette at the cafe. Now you see a lot of people shivering outside under these space heaters because they, they can't smoke indoors anymore, right?
1: No. France went on smoking, what, in January? Yeah. But what what they did, and I, and I think this is so cute, you know, in the warm weather, all the cafes have outdoor tables so you can smoke outside. Right. And in America, people would say, that's not fair. You just gave the best seats to the smokers. And, and the French say, look, you know, like they can't smoke inside. Just shut up. Like, Sit out there with the smoke, or sit inside. But there's nothing else we can do for you. Whereas in America, you know, when they when like New York first went non-smoking, you could you could smoke outside, and then, you know, now the outside is is non-smoking. Now they're crowded in
0: little smoky glass rooms and airports. It looks what happened
1: terrific. is what happened is Italy went non-smoking, and if, if you can train the Italians, if you can tame them, then you can tame anyone. And the Europeans have these big.
0: Smoking will kill you signs on their cigarette packs half the package says smoking will kill you right you, you can right? read them from space or smoking will make you impotent right <laughs> now you smoke a lot of tobacco and before you ever smoked a tobacco you smoked a lot of marijuana
1: yeah it was it was smoking pot that got me to smoking um, that's kind of the cigarettes. backwards way to go well you know i was i smoked a lot of pot and then i didn't have any pot and i just wanted to feel something and my best friend was a smoker, and, and I said, well, does the cigarette make you feel... Yeah, because I don't know if a cigarette gives you a buzz or... It does. It makes you a little kind of lightheaded, lightheaded and nauseous. Lightheaded. It's, it's nothing like being high, but it's something.
0: You know, I was reading your book, and I thought, David must smoke pot. And do you know what I was reading? What? I was reading, when you when you couldn't find any flies to feed your spider in Paris, you bought crickets, a box of crickets, and you said, the crickets smell like an inclination, perhaps cruelty. And I thought right then... This guy must have smoked a little pot in his days. And then later on, you write a whole thing about how much pot you smoked. But crickets
1: stink. Yeah, but an inclination. Whoever thought of a stink as an inclination? Well, they, 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 they smelled worse than a thing, right? You couldn't, you couldn't say, oh, crickets smell like <laughs> rotten meat or whatever. They, they smell like just a bad idea. I love the way you relate to things we all
0: relate to on transatlantic flights. I mean, what it, you said... Creating a brief parody of an evening.
1: Well, tell us about that. When the flight from New York to Paris, or from Paris to New York, just how you know how that is. Like, so the flight leaves New York at seven o'clock, and then they feed you dinner, and then all of a sudden it's it's bedtime, and it's like, (laughs) and you fall for it for a minute, and you think, wait a minute, I haven't gone to bed at nine o'clock since I was six. It's not bedtime. You got
0: breakfast in three hours, so don't don't blink.
1: But I don't. uh, I just stay awake on planes. I, I. and now it's it's better because you have your own little movie screens, you know, and you can watch as many little.
0: Would you pay extra to fly business rather than coach?
1: Well, so that's the thing. Like, I never. I'm usually not the one paying for my ticket. Mm-hmm. If I were paying for my ticket, then it's a whole different thing. Yeah. Because then I would think, okay, well, I I can easily suffer for six hours. And... I mean, do the
0: arithmetic. Yeah, it's right. like a hundred bucks an hour to be in denser quarters.
1: Right, and then I think of all the things I could get. And I'd rather spend my money on on other things, I I suppose, than a little extra leg room.
0: But what's it worth to have somebody to say, may I bring you a drink to go with those warm
1: nuts, Mr. Sedaris? You get used to it. You know, you really do sort of get used to it. (laughs) (laughs) They, they, on uh, Delta, they bring you piping hot nuts when you board the plane, and, and it's just a And all the peasants are walking by
0: you. You already got your mimosa and your nuts or something. Well,
1: they give me that look that I used to give people, like, who the hell do you think you are? It's the way you feel when a limo door opens, and it's always like a a, a teenager. Well,
0: what do you think I feel like? I'm I'm Mr. Budget Travel, and if I get pumped up, I'm in business class. Oh, then you're in trouble. People look at me like, you hypocrite. And it's really, I go, I'm last one on the plane. It's, it works very very nicely <laughs> that way. <laughs> I like the uh, comment of the, uh, what, what do you say, the uh, flight attendants call it the ICU section?
1: They call, uh, yeah, they call business class the ICU because the passengers are in constant need of attention. You know what I found out, and I don't know if you can, I don't know if you can use this on your show or not, but I love any kind of travel-related information like that. And I was signing books, and I met a flight attendant, And she said, you know how when you're on a plane, she said, if you have your plastic bottle of water, will get all crinkly. She said, well, that happens to our insides, too, and that's why we get all gassy. I said, okay. She said, so what me and the other gals will sometimes do is pass gas while we walk up and down the aisle. She said, the noise of the plane covers up the sound. Anyway, that's what we call crop dusting. My son just taught me that term. I've never heard it before
0: in my life. I love it. So the, the flight attendants it too. crop dust in, <laughs> in the business class as well as the economy.
1: They crop dust wherever they, wherever their crops be dusted. <laughs> <laughs>
0: we crop dust. Then the people sitting next to each other look at each other right. crossly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're having a discussion with David Sedaris about the, the minutiae of travel, crossing the Atlantic little crop dusting, uh, getting to know spiders in Normandy, just enjoying different cultures. David, you spend a lot of time
1: in hotels. Do you have a ritual when you settle into a hotel? What do you do to kind of make it yours? You know, I was I'm on a book tour now and people often say, Oh, is your boyfriend coming with you? And I said, No. The last time Hugh came with me, we were in a town and I walked I went to the bathroom and I came out and he was putting his clothes in drawers. I said, You don't put your clothes in drawers in a hotel? That's how you lose things. You never let anything get any more than two feet from your suitcase. Right. I really pride myself. I've, this is, pr- I think, my 10th book tour, you know, because I yeah. go on hardcover and paperback. Once I left a tie at a restaurant and I went back the next morning and got it, I've not lost anything. Because you
0: keep it all within yeah. two, two feet of your bag. Yeah. Right. You and push- I also
1: keep a list of what I've packed.
0: When I get into a room, I just don't like all the clutter they've got laid around. I just like to clean well, all that stuff. That's your budget
1: out. traveler because the the crummy the hotel, the more billboards they've got everywhere, everywhere. You know, like try our try our breakfast tacos, or uh, <laughs> you know, here are some we, we can find other hotels as crummy as this one. So I collect all that stuff and I put it all away. But a yeah. good hotel will save the earth. Save the earth. Don't make us wash these towels. Save the earth, right? Every time we wash a towel, eight penguins die. So that's fine. I'll reuse my towel. But then they do the turndown service, and you come back into your room. The TV's on. The radio's on. All the lights are on. And I'm thinking, you, just, you were just talking to me about saving the earth. What's all this? You know, I've been gone from my room for nine hours. All these lights and all this stuff has been burning.
0: Or I open up a soap. I want to use it a few days. And they have to throw it away every day, so I have to open up a new soap.
1: Another thing that bothers me is don't. Sometimes I get into the into a hotel and I turn on the radio and I'll think who the hell was in this room <laughs> you know like it's like a heavy metal station or something yeah. but I find the NPR station yeah. right I have a little book that tells me where the stations are in every town so I've got my NPR station and I iron my shirt and I listen to all things considered and then I leave and I come back and then they've changed the radio station to light jazz it's like I didn't I don't want to listen to light leave my leave the radio alone they I put override it override your Your choice. Well, yeah, like if you stay in a good hotels will do that. They come and they retune your radio to light jazz. Light jazz. Hey, you've lived in Paris and London and Tokyo. Must have been quite an adjustment settling into Tokyo. How was that, getting an apartment or whatever? Uh, We know a Japanese woman who lives there, and then she was a big help because we went on these websites uh, looking for an apartment. But I thought it was going to be like super, super expensive, and it was $10,000 for three months which in Tokyo yeah which wasn't that bad yeah. and we were ashamed to have people over because we had so much room that they wow. would be, they really? would, be, would be they would be embarrassed at how much room we had for that amount of money and it was a in a, other words you a can get a reasonable, rise, a reasonable sprawling
0: apartment in Tokyo for yeah an affordable amount of money 100 dollars a day
1: it was a it was a high-rise building and it was for people who were doing business in Japan but I never saw any other Westerners. I think a lot of them were were Chinese and Korean. I would think you could write a whole book
0: on—well, you've got essays in your new book on on living in Tokyo and adjusting there. I would think you could write a whole book on the excitement of—or the wonder and the confusion and the embarrassment of being clunky in the culture of
1: Japan. But normally, I mean, I I think that the the people were so unbelievably kind— you know, when you go to another country and you don't really speak the language and you go out to dinner and you think, if we can just get through this, if we can just order, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what they bring us. If we can just get through this horrible process of not understanding the language and ordering. But in Japan, that was always fun. Oh, because yeah. the waiter would die if he thought that you were made uncomfortable in any way. So – that's sort of what made it so... Well, um Japanese are so gracious. I've, it's the only country I've been where routinely people would
0: come up to me and say, you look lost. Can I help you? A beautiful thing. You know, your books are translated into 22 languages. Are you concerned if the uh, translations are accurate or, or are you even
1: witty and funny in Indonesian? Sometimes a translator will call up with a question. Like when one of my books was being translated, I was talking about my brother what was in the kitchen making Spanakopita with Pam. And the translator called and said, now who is this Pam person? You didn't mention her earlier in the story. And I had to explain that it was, you know, cooking oil that came in an aerosol can. And he said, we're going to have to use a footnote for yeah. this.
0: <laughs> well, it's good he's that conscientious. <laughs> Do you think your observations, the wittiness of your observations, transcend language as long as it's translated right? Or, or is it unique to American well, I know culture?
1: that uh, I'm told that the fellow who used to translate my books into German... Did an excellent job. And I would go on tours with him, Uh, this guy named Harry Roward. And I remember the first night we read together, I said, how long is this going to last? And he said, a bottle. And he drank an entire fifth of whiskey. He read, (laughs) I I think all he had left was like the, the ISBN number. I mean, to be read out loud, he just kept going and going. And I would follow along. And I don't speak German, but every now and then he'd say, Raleigh, North Carolina. And I would know where we were. (laughs) <laughs> and I would think, oh, this gets, next line gets a big laugh in America, but it won't here, but poof, worked just like it did in America. That's right.
0: You could measure it just by the response from the translations, what worked and what didn't. Yeah. Great. Well, I hope they uh, get good responses everywhere. David Sedaris, with your new book, When You're Engulfed in Flames, best wishes and thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, thank you, Rick. You're welcome. Do itashimashite.